Well, good morning. It is so good to have all of you here. Welcome to you. Welcome also to those of you joining us online. Joseph prayed a moment ago about our students that are at campaigns. I understand we have about 150 people there uh, this weekend for our youth fall retreat. So if you see fewer students around this morning, that is the reason why. And I understand things have gone really, really well. Before we get into the message, I'd like to pray again. We've got a, uh, a very serious prayer request from one of our missionaries, Randall and Luda Ford, um, are living in Israel and have sent some specific requests about what has happened there this week. And um, I'd like to ask that you would join me now as we pray for the Lord's hand to move in Israel. I think of the verse, I think it's Psalm 122 that says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They will prosper who love you. So join me please as we pray now. Father, we come together as your people, as your church in the name of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray now as Randall has suggested, we pray for the situation in Israel we pray first for the safe return of the many hostages that have been taken. Lord, we pray for your mercy, your protection, and for their release. We also pray that you would stretch out your mighty hand and present Hezbollah from entering the battle, Lord, from entering the war. And we pray for the government, for the leaders of Israel to know how to respond and restore security, particularly to the southern communities. Father, in your great mercy, let peace come. Let your wisdom come to the leaders there. Lord, we pray for Randall and Luda and their ministry that it would continue to flourish in the midst of all that's happening, that you would bless them and keep them and cause your face to shine upon them. And now, Lord, as we open your word today, would you open the eyes of our hearts that we may behold wonderful things out of your law in Jesus' great name we pray, amen. Well, thank you again for being here today. We have begun a study of the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, 1 Corinthians implies there is a 2 Corinthians, and there is. We're studying only 1 Corinthians at this time, a letter written by the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians is not as theological a book as Romans, the book that immediately precedes it, or as Galatians, the book that follows 1st and 2nd Corinthians. In the book of 1st Corinthians, there's a good deal of correction and direction and practical guidance. In 1st Corinthians, the apostle Paul is dealing with specific topics and issues and questions that he had been asked by the church and about which he is responding back to them. As a little background on what's happening among the Corinthians, we can read in the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 18, the beginning of the chapter, we read Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. 
Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So Paul had brought the gospel here to Corinth. Uh, he had a unique role as the apostle who had been sent to them and helped to establish the church there. And now he's writing back sometime later, and he's addressing problems in the church, issues that have arisen in the church, factions, divisiveness that's arisen. And if you were with us last week when Pastor Andrew was speaking in chapter 3, you may have noticed that the Apostle Paul is admonishing the Corinthians, warning them, correcting them, rebuking them for their spiritual immaturity. Uh, for example, he notes in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 3, that there was jealousy, strife, and judgmentalism. And notice how he addresses them. But I, brothers, and when he uses the brothers, a word brothers in his letters like this, he is referring to all the believers, male, female, men, women. I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. For even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. Now hear what he's saying. He's saying you're believers, but you're infants. You're babies in Christ. You're spiritual babes. You're not ready for teaching for more mature believers. The solid food, you're still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. Remarkable. He's saying you're, you're brothers, you're believers, you're infants in Christ, you're in Christ, that is, but you're still of the flesh. What are these indicators of immaturity? Well, two of them are jealousy and strife. Jealousy and strife. No matter how mature they may have thought they were because they had jealousy and strife. Paul's saying these are indicators of spiritual immaturity. And there's a further indicator, and that was their judgmentalism. He notes this one in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. When he writes, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, who will disclose the purposes of the heart. They were making judgments about Paul, about his motives. They were making comparisons amongst different teachers, Paul, Apollos, and others who had come amongst them. And Paul is addressing this tendency to make judgments. And uh, they were saying, for example, as he noted previously in chapter 3, one of you says, I follow Paul. One says, I follow Apollos. And when you're acting this way, you're being merely human. Apollos was a teacher, a Bible teacher that came to Corinth following Paul. He was well taught in the scriptures, and when Paul left Corinth, Apollos came in and uh, continued to teach them. But Paul says, when you've got this jealousy, this strife, this judgmentalism, you're behaving in a merely human way, and you're not living like mature spiritual believers. He continues to admonish them, and he admonishes them for their spiritual immaturity because they had factions, factions based on preferences and unwise comparisons. He writes, for when one says, I follow Paul, another, 
I follow Apollos, the teacher that came in here after Paul left. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Now notice now how he's speaking about himself. Notice the humility of this man, the great apostle Paul, the one who brought them the gospel. What is Paul? Servants to whom you believe, says the Lord, assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Paul's saying, God did it, not me, not Apollos. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Notice how Paul's humbling himself before the people. And at the same time, rebuking them for their tendency to align themselves with one preacher, teacher, or another. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God. Only God who gives the growth. Paul's pointing them away from identifying with people, including himself, and he's pointing them to God. In 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 6, he goes on to say this, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. Paul's saying, I'm using myself as an example here now, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. When he says, don't go beyond what is written, I think he, he is uh, meaning don't go beyond what is written in Scripture, and that would include what he himself has written to them thus far in this letter. What Paul is saying to them is simply this. Don't find your identity in a, in a preacher. Uh, don't find your identity in a, in a faction, a group that's pulled off, a group that separates itself on the basis of some opinion or some preference. You know, when I think about what he was addressing there, I, I frankly don't see people in our, our church or even our, our church world today necessarily identifying themselves with, with different pastors or different preachers. I do see more than this, Christians identifying themselves around specific political issues, cultural issues, socioeconomic status. And I think what Paul is saying is that when you segment yourselves as Christians in these ways, you're acting in a merely human way rather than in a spiritually mature way. So he continues to admonish them, and the Apostle Paul now admonishes them for their immaturity that is indicated by their pride, their pride. Now in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 7, we read these words. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? Now let me pause here for a moment. This verse this simple verse in verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive, is one of the most important antidotes to pride, I believe, in all of Scripture. What do you have that you didn't receive? What do you have that wasn't given you by God? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Then he uses, 
I think, here a little bit of sarcasm when he says, already you have all you want. Already you become rich. Without us, you become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. I think Paul is, is speaking a bit sarcastically here just to say to the Corinthians, you think you've, you've already arrived. You think you've already arrived even at maturity. You have all you want. Paul is going to contrast this way of thinking with his way of thinking flowing out of the cross. But let me again focus on verse 7 here. What do you have that you've not received? One of the, one of the greatest Christians I have ever known died last night about 9 p.m. Uh, my mother-in-law, Betty Hastings, my wife's mom, she was 95. She was ready to go. She was eager to go be with the Lord. But I, I have reflected much upon her life over the years. Since she moved up from Florida to be around us, I've observed her life. And um, I, I'll, I'll, I can say it sincerely. I think she's one of the greatest Christians I've ever known because she's one of the most generous, uh, self-sacrificing and humble people um, I've, I think I've ever known. And um, she was a giver. I can say this now that she's not here, now that she's with the Lord. I would never say it otherwise if she was still living. But she, she would give away. Um, she lived on a teacher's pension, small pension. Um, she had taught kindergarten uh, uh, for many years and been a widow for years. But she gave 25% of her income to the Lord. And in addition to that, she was just always doing stuff for people, baking stuff, giving stuff away. And, you know, sometimes I, I might question her, like, what? You, you, you don't really need to do that. You, you don't have to give this all away. And her response would likely be something like this. It's all the Lord's anyway. It all belongs to him. And it would be a, a kind rebuke to me. And I think of her when I think of this verse. What do you have that you didn't receive? Sometimes I'll hear people say, well, I, I, I got what I got because I'm a self-made person. I have great ingenuity. I took advantage of every opportunity. I work really, really, really hard. That's great. The Bible rewards diligence, effort hard work, the book of Proverbs commends those things, but yet we have to ask ourselves, who let me be born in the country where I was born? Who let me have the education I was able to get? Who gives me the very air I breathe? Who gives me the physical and mental ability to take initiative and take advantage of opportunities? Did I create all that myself? What do you have that you did not receive? The very air we breathe is a gift of God. And so Paul is saying this, and I think this verse is one of the greatest antidotes to pride in all the Bible. What do you have you didn't receive? And if you received it, if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Paul is bringing the Corinthians away from their factions and their pride and their jealousies to the way of the cross, the way of humility. God's done it all. It's all about him. Now Paul 
is he's rebuking them for finding their identity in a person they follow or in their wealth. He now points to himself as an example. And in correcting the Corinthians, he asked them to consider his own life. And read what he says now in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 16. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor one against another. In other words, I'm using myself as an example. And then he says in verse 16, I urge you, therefore, be imitators of me. He'll say the same thing later in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And when Paul talks about leaders, he stresses that leaders should be regarded in three ways. Here's what they are, starting in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 9. Leaders should be regarded as, number one, God's fellow workers. We read in verse 9, we're God's fellow workers. You're God's field, God's building. Right before that, again, he said, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Paul's saying, we're nothing. We're not anything. It's God who gives the growth. We're God's fellow workers. It's as if he's saying, God's doing the work. He's just letting us be part of it. God is working through us. We're fellow workers with God. We're on the same team because God lets us be on the same team and lets us do what we're doing. Secondly, he said we should be regarded as servants. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants to whom you believed is the Lord assigned to each. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Jesus, we read in Matthew 20, said the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul has taken on this identity, the way of the cross. I'm a servant. I'm just God's fellow worker. God's doing the work. I'm just a servant. I'm a servant through whom you believed. I'm a servant of Christ. And then thirdly, I'm a steward. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. The word stewards used quite a lot in, in the New Testament. The word refers to a household manager, not an owner. Typically, a household manager, a steward, would be a, a servant that had been elevated to a position of responsibility and authority under the owner. Typically, uh, responsible for other servants and the management of, of the household and household duties, but not the owner. And the analogy, of course, is made with uh, us as believers and the church. We're stewards. We're not owners. We're stewards of what God entrusts to our care. And Paul is saying that's the way we should be regarded as ministers, as stewards of the mysteries of God, the message of the gospel. And it's required, what's required for stewards is that we be faithful. So what's Paul saying in all this? He's saying that's all we are. We're God's fellow workers, we're servants, we're stewards. So do not find your identity in us. Don't find your identity in mere human beings. Now, finally, as we move through this section, I'd like to end with this emphasis. How can we know 
when we're growing in spiritual maturity? What are the marks of spiritual maturity to which he's calling us in this section of 1 Corinthians chapter 4? First of all, and I think perhaps uh, most importantly, we find our identity in Christ, in Christ. Throughout Paul's writings, uh, we find these words, in Christ, sometimes he'll, he'll write simply, in him, and it's a reference to what God has done in saving us and making us part of Christ's body, placing us into Christ, where we now find our identity. Notice the, the uh, three times you see the words in Christ in these three verses. For though you have countless gods in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. He had already said in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30, because of him, you are in Christ. Because of God, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In other words, all of our salvation is about God making us in Christ. Lots of people today struggle with their identity, who they are, particularly uh, students, young adults, they real struggle with identity. So social media fuels all of this comparison with other people's, and it affects how we think about ourselves, how others think of us. For those struggling with identity, I know of no better place to look in the Scripture than the book of Ephesians. Just listen to a few verses I'll read. They, they won't be on the screen, but notice the references to being in Christ or in Him. Ephesians 1 and verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. 1 and verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1 and verse 7, in him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Verse 11, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. We could go on and on and on into the second chapter of the book of Ephesians. God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. On and on and on. In Christ's identity. When we embrace the message of the gospel that we were dead in our sins, God opened our eyes by his spirit to the reality that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He shed his blood to forgive us, to redeem us. He rose from the dead to give us eternal life. He brings us to himself and through faith in him, we are, we are made part of his body. We are immersed into the body of Christ. And when we embrace the gospel, we now have a new identity. As believers, our identity is not primarily in our vocations, our 
education, not primarily in our wealth or our social status, not in our sexual preferences, not in our athletic ability, not in cultural or political views. These things all have something in common. They're all passing away. They're all going to pass away. They're cheap counterfeits for a secure, lasting, eternal identity in Christ. And that's what God offers you if you're a believer in Jesus. When you think about yourself, what comes to mind? Your identity is not defined by what others think of you or even what you think of yourself. Our identity is defined by the one who created us, our creator. And through Jesus, our recreator. The Apostle Paul says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. Our identity is in him. And so Paul's calling the Corinthians now away from this jealousy and these factions and this boasting and this pride. And first of all, just find your security, find your identity in Jesus. Secondly, we can know we're growing in spiritual maturity not only when we find our identity in Christ, but when we recognize that everything that we've been given has been given us by God. And again, this is that verse I think is so important. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The Apostle Paul himself who wrote these words, he had extraordinary gifts. He had the best education in Judaism in his time, but he also had extraordinary gifts as a Christian. If we read Acts chapter 19, right after he went to Corinth, he goes to Ephesus, and we read these words. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Just take a handkerchief that has touched his body and take it to someone who's demon-possessed and the demon leaves. There was such power in this man, with this man, upon this man, such giftedness, an apostle, a teacher, an evangelist. Paul's saying, what do you have you didn't receive? This man had the gifts, the spiritual gifts, but he's calling us to humility and again, when he says, what do you have you didn't receive? I don't think he's only talking about spiritual gifts. I think he's talking about everything in life, wealth, influence, status, education, the food we have, the water we drink, the very air we breathe are provided us by God. And when we recognize that, I think it, it brings us to a place of humility and it brings us away from boasting as he saw the Corinthians doing. Finally, we can know we're growing in spiritual maturity when we embrace the way of the cross. This is 
the way that Paul has chosen for himself into which he's calling the Corinthians. He had told them previously, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. He goes on to say then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, when I came to you, brothers, I, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with uh, lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul's focus was the cross of Jesus. He would write later to the Galatians, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives within me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That, he's saying, is now my identity. So as we draw toward a close, when we follow the way of the cross, like Paul did, I think it means we have several things, results in these things, when we really embrace what the message of the cross is. Number one, gratitude for what God's done for us in Jesus. Sometimes people have asked, okay, you, you're always saying that salvation is a gift of God. By grace, are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves? It's a gift of God then why do good works if it's entirely a gift of God? Well, the answer, I think, in part at least, is gratitude, love. We love him because he first loved us. Secondly, the way of the cross brings us to humility, dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul points us to Jesus' example when he writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind or this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, emptying himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The way of the cross, the way of humility, is the way of depending on the power of God to do through us what he does. Now, we're not just talking now about needing God's power for, for going out as an evangelist or witnessing. We need God's power to have healthy relationships Definitely to have healthy marriages. I mean, where Paul is most emphatic about being filled with his spirit, where he gives the command, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, he goes on to give his longest teaching about marriage in the New Testament. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to have a healthy marriage, to do healthy parenting, to do our jobs as we should. And then finally, the way of the cross is the way of love that motivates our obedience and our service. The message of the gospel that Paul's bringing to the Corinthians and to us is not work harder, try harder, do more, get your life in order. No. 
It's recognize what God has done for us in Christ. And that love then is the motive for serving. Love is the motive for praying. Love is the motive for giving. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my words. That, I think, is the message of the gospel. Love compels obedience. Love motivates ministry. The Apostle Paul said the love of Christ compels us. That's why he's out there spreading the gospel. Finally, then, let me raise three questions by way of personal application. The first one is this. I would urge you to ask yourself. Is my identity securely grounded in who I am in Christ? In who I am in Christ. If you wrestle with that, if you're always struggling with uh, what others think of you, what you think of yourself, your identity, I would, again, point you to the early chapters of the book of Ephesians, where repeatedly the Apostle Paul refers to believers as being those who are in Christ, in him. We find our identity there. There is security there. For Paul, there was security in servanthood. Is my identity securely grounded in who I am in Christ? Secondly, have I recognized the gifts God's given me? Am I using them to serve others as a faithful steward? That's, that's how Paul saw himself as a servant, as a steward, a fellow worker with God. And then finally, is my obedience to the Lord being motivated by, by love for him and gratitude? Again, the message is not try harder, do more. Rather, it's embrace the gospel, recognize what Jesus has done for you, recognize why he did it, and let your life be a response to him. We love him because he first loved us. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we come before you today in the name of our Lord Jesus. Thank you for showing us the way, Lord, by humbling yourself, by coming to the cross, by bearing our judgment for paying our penalty, that we might know you. And Lord, may we live as those who have embraced the gospel and pour out our lives as a response of love and gratitude. Not to earn your favor, but out of gratitude that you've given us your favor in the gospel. Speak to us. Especially pray for any who are struggling with their identity. And Lord, I pray this for all the students who are at the fall retreat, those who are not in the room with us, young men, young women, that you'd help them in our church to find their security in Christ, to find their acceptance in him. And we ask this in your great name, Lord.